Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and Art DeRoche of The Athletic. Well, that was a weekend for the ages, wasn't it? Leicester's FA Cup win stirred the soul. Liverpool needed divine intervention to sustain their challenge for a top four place in the Premier League. Chelsea's women and their inspirational manager Emma Hayes were reminded that the harshest lessons are delivered on the biggest stage. But let's begin at Wembley and the club that highlights the shallowness of a so-called Super League. It felt redemptive because it was so obviously a collective triumph that united players, fans and the Leicester ownership. Fans are back this week, Paul. That final reminded us of what we've missed, didn't it? It did, Mike. When you can't hear the post-match interviews because the fans are making such a racket, you know something has changed. And um, you have to ask yourself whether it was such a great game because the teams and the fans were feeding off each other, as they always have done. It was no longer a, a hollow, shallow, noiseless crater. It was a it was a cauldron again, even with, was it 20,000 people in total, I think? Yeah. It was an FA Cup full of, of uh, passion and, and meaning. I worked out this morning that Leicester City were founded in 1884, so it took them 132 years to win the league and 137 years to win the FA Cup at both time. They kind of restored faith in those competitions and, and made the rest of football happy, which is quite an achievement. It was true. I, you know, I lost count of the number of posts I saw on social media art, which basically said, look, I'm not a Leicester fan, but that was fantastic. So it was proof I suppose that it's a well actually it was a reminder why we all probably fell in love with the game as kids wasn't it definitely and I think the one man that embodies that more than all was Jamie Vardy especially with the way the game was going in the final 10 minutes I remember the little moment he had with Reese James in the corner there and his reaction was to smile to the Leicester fans and for the final five minutes he's just laughing with them and I think that's something everyone's missed really from the past year or so that with no fans that relationship that footballers can have with those that in in the ground even from say fans asking 
a goalkeeper to give them a wave. <laughs> I think that's something that most people have missed. And Jamie Vardy coming through the journey he has done to play in every single round of the FA Cup and end up winning it is something that when he won the Premier League, I don't think many people thought he would be able to achieve even more than he had done then. But of course, he's proved everyone wrong <laughs> yet again. Yeah, it was proof, wasn't it, that you can't recreate a crowd's mood or momentum or their emotion. We'll remember that, not so much for the game itself, but the scenes afterwards. Did that, Paul, prove that ownership in modern football need not necessarily be malign or self-interested or ignorant? I suppose it did. I mean, the Leicester owners, you know, they are plutocrats. Leicester aren't owned by the NHS or anything. It, they are they are very yeah. powerful people with a business empire and they make hard-headed business decisions like every other owner. I mean, sacking Claudio Ranieri in the season after he won the league title would be an example of that. You know, they're, they're rational people, but they also they also understand the thing that they built and the value of it and they understand the people, the human element, you know, they, you saw the owner there relating to the players and the managers. So unusually you saw a connection between owner, fans, manager and players. It, it was all indivisible and it was almost a shock to the eyes to see all those people enjoying it together in that way because we think of owners these days as remote people in Florida or Boston or Abu Dhabi. And it, it was just very refreshing to see the whole of a football club uh, united and enjoying itself in that way. Yeah. Let's look at Brendan Rodgers' art, if we could. That seemed to be the reward for his, his empathetic approach and almost an unheralded maturity of management. You know, He's been through the mill, hasn't he? But he's actually emerged as a much more rounded product. Yeah, I think one of the things at Liverpool from his time at Liverpool was he seemed like a very good football coach, but he just needed to refine those human elements in terms of not that he couldn't relate to his players. I think even Steven Gerrard has said that he had some of the best coaching under Brendan Rodgers, but just about managing those pressure moments. And I think he's probably learned how to deal with those pressure moments extremely well at Celtic. And then coming down to Leicester, it's about finding that blend between the youth of Yuri Tielemans, Ben Chilwell before he left last summer, but now Luke Thomas in that left-back role and that experience of, say, Wes Morgan, who came on for the final 10 minutes, and Jamie Bardi, who's played such an important role at Leicester City these past few years. And personally, I think moving from good coach to a good manager has been the biggest thing for him. And we, I do feel that people actually forget how young Brendan Rodgers still is. He's only 47, 48 years old. And in the, in the lifespan of a, of a football manager, when you're looking at the rivals he's up against, most of them are north of 50 years old. And I think the steps he's taken in terms of a man who wasn't a professional player, but was very keen on coaching human beings from a very young age, from his time at Reading, Chelsea, Reading again, Watford, Swansea. I think he's one of the most interesting managers to kind of listen to in terms of not just his press conferences, but if you look at interviews he's done as well, away from the football environment, if you actually listen to him, he's a very interesting person to just to, to listen to in terms of what he 
believes in as a person and how he's more almost more of a teacher than a, a manager and I think that's where for me he's one of the managers in the Premier League that I am most intrigued by and I was very happy to see him win the FA Cup. Mm. What about the nature of the team that he's created there? Obviously it's a product pool of terrific recruitment. You know, look at Fafana, I thought was a, you know had a fantastic game on Saturday. And also cultivation of leaders within his group, you know, Casper Smichael being a really good example. What about the nature of that Leicester team? Yeah, not many clubs, uh, teams reinvent themselves in five years the way they have. They were in 2016 when they won the Premier League title, they were a, you know, essentially a, a hardworking counter-attacking team, a brilliant counter-attacking team, but they were... They were fairly direct, you know, hitting balls down the channel in behind defenders. Jamie Vardy was racing onto them. They were great to watch, but it wasn't the Leicester City team we're watching now. So they've evolved into a sort of mainstream, essentially a possession-based team with speed. It's a, it's a higher quality team than the 2016 team, obviously. And managing that transition in itself is impressive because it, you just don't see that with clubs. They don't change their identity that way. And they've gone from being a cheaply built team, Vardy and Kasper Schmeichel, I think cost about a million quid each, didn't they? Into a, a more expensive team. They've recruited exceptionally well, as you said, with Fafana and Tielemans and Ndidi and players like that. And yet they're still not competing in the market that, you know, Chelsea and Manchester City compete in. And they, and they can sell when they think they can. Maguire to Man United, Chilwell and Canty to Chelsea, the, the obvious examples. So for a team that sells some of its best players, it's incredible that they're, they're, they're right up there in the Champions League places and they've just won the FA Cup and they seem to be progressing with this brilliant formula. Mm. Where does this leave Chelsea are? You know, with Tuesday's night at Stamford Bridge in mind, Leicester are obviously visiting. You know, my suspicion is that Leicester fans would probably swap the FA Cup final win for Champions League qualification. But, you know, the real politic at Chelsea is that the minimum that's going to be expected of Thomas Tuchel is to make sure they're back in the Champions League next season. Do you think he'll succeed? I do think he will, but it will be very hard, especially with the result on the weekend. I do feel that even though it's a quick turnaround, Leicester will be extra confident heading into that game. And after a very not tame, but a soft performance against Arsenal, and then another soft-ish performance against Leicester, Thomas Tuchel is going to need a reaction from his players. And when you look at how the season is going to end, they, of course, have the chance to win the Champions League and qualify through that route. But in the grand scheme of things, there is a possibility that they can miss out on both winning the Champions League and qualification even though it is a very slim chance, Alisson's heroics yesterday <laughs> keeps Liverpool in that running. And with how Chelsea are run as a club, I know some people have made jokes about it, but the fact that Thomas Tuchel can potentially have his job in, in doubt over not making Champions League after the season he's had already, I think that just shows how ruthless Chelsea can be and how things can change very quickly in the world of football, which, of course, is something that, on the flip side, Leicester have shown in a more positive sense. But with with Chelsea and Thomas Tuchel, I think it is time to use that that Leicester defeat as a wake-up call rather than feeling, feeling sorry for themselves. Mm. Yeah, Art mentioned change there, Paul. 
I mentioned at the top of the show that fans are back for the last two rounds of the Premier League games. But what's really changed in terms of attitudes within football, in terms of, you know, there was a, an outpouring of of disgust, frankly, when the Super League plans were unveiled or they sort of blundered out. How do you see that protest movement evolving as we get into an area where, okay, you look at Manchester United, the scenes before the Liverpool game. Are we in this in the stage now of looking at, let's say, brand damage as a critical factor in all this? Because, you know, you've got the Glazers, they're losing potential deals. Is that going to be the, the thing that tips the balance or is it going to be public disgust? That's a very good question. I certainly think with Manchester United, uh, the brand damage is, is real. The sponsors and other shareholders are getting uh, restive. Those images are being seen around the world. I mean, it, it, when, a, when, a, when a Manchester United-Liverpool game gets postponed through a street protest, you know, that's no small matter. That doesn't go away. Everybody has seen that. Everybody who might have thought of as Manchester United as a lovely, shiny global brand will have been shocked by that and will have been made aware of the depth of feeling. And as we saw with the protest when the game was restaged, that those feelings haven't gone away. I mean, you know, your question is, where does it go now? Which is a, which is a difficult one to answer. I think the I think the feeling of betrayal is is still there and will stay there. The feeling of being conned by this Super League attempted coup d'etat. And I think that fans now feel emboldened. They feel empowered. They've seen what protest can do, what resistance can do. It really is quite something when Manchester United have to have their afternoon kip inside Old Trafford to avoid getting <laughs> barricaded in at the Lowry, you know, for a game. I mean, that that tells you that the protest can be very effective. Obviously, it needs to stay legal and controlled. But I would like to think that fans won't go back into stadiums feeling that the problem's been solved, the protest has been made, let's all get on with it and let's all forget it ever happened. You know, we can't forget it ever happened because the motivation is there. And all the time the motivation is there, everybody has to be on their guard and try to roll back the power of these owners. Yeah, you know, you're close to Arsenal, Art. With their fans, do you think they'll sustain their protests and also... What's the mood there in terms of, you know, what, to be honest, I look at as a PR stunt, Daniel X's supposed bid for the club. You know, surprise, surprise, it's collapsed. Were Arsenal fans taken in by that? And where do you think they'll go? Because the disgust with the Cronkies, is, it seems to me from a distance to be real. Yeah, I'd start with the first point on the protests and, what I'd say on that is rather than just being focused on the whole Super League fiasco, those were very much pointed at the Cronkies, the ownership, for long-standing distaste for them. And the big thing with that is when Josh Cronkies, Stan Cronkies' son, spoke at um, Arsenal's fan forum last month, he admitted that they know they're not trusted by the Arsenal fans. And I think that was very telling in terms of they know they're not trusted, but they're still not willing to sell. That shows you where their motivations are. And Arsenal's fan protests will continue, I believe. They continued the most recent home game against West Brom, even though they were in fewer numbers. There were still people outside the Emirates for that game. Obviously, in the Europa League semi-final, it's a bit different. They chose that occasion to uplift the squad on arrival rather than go against Stan and Josh Kroenke. 
But I do believe that those protests will keep happening because it is a long-standing distaste that they've had for the Arsenal ownership. And in terms of Daniel Ek, he obviously tweeted on the weekend that he made his bid and it was rejected by the Cronkies because they, they said they don't need the money. And <laughs> to, to your point um, on whether the fans were taken in by Ek, by X proposal, I believe they were simply because not just he he was using say Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, and Dennis Burkamp as the the forerunners for this human but... shields, human shields. <laughs> that's what they were. But also he he I I think he was quite smart in the way he did it in terms of he he made the approach very fan friendly in terms of he was saying that he was going to include the fans much more than the Cronkies had done. And I believe that was probably what swung most fans in that his direction, as well as the fact that he, he is a self-confessed Arsenal fan. So I believe there was a lot of positive vibes from Arsenal fans around him. But if he is serious, it's not going to happen in a space of a few weeks. It's going to take months, maybe even years. So if he is serious... Let's let's buckle in and let's see where the ride takes us. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath, mate. But there we are. On on the broader perspective, Paul, Richard Masters at the Premier League rejects the idea of an independent regulator for football. Well, I suppose he would, wouldn't he? We're speaking on the morning that a petition has been launched demanding that's some sort of independent regulation. I can see the logic of it. You know, the FA, as, as currently constituted, is probably unfit for purpose. The Premier League is never really going to change because of its inherent collection of vested interests. Do you think we are at a stage now in football where fundamental change can happen and can be generated? Yeah, it, it can only happen if it comes from above in the sense that, as you said, the FA isn't really set up to regulate these huge business empires. And in a sense, it's not fair to expect it to because it doesn't have the powers to do so and it has a, a million other things to do. It's the financial and ownership side that need regulating. And the Premier League clubs are never going to vote for that because it involves a loss of freedom and it might deter overseas investors. You know, why do, why do people flood into ownership in, in a Premier League level? It's because they know it's unregulated. It's a laissez-faire world. It has huge guaranteed TV revenues, which, 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 which give you a bottom line every year. You know, it, it's, it's, the, it's the easiest business investment in the land, really, because, because you know you can do pretty much what you like and you know you're guaranteed this TV money. So that side of it has now mutated obviously into the kind of the, the, the Super League delusion and it's out of control. The, the, the power of these big clubs is now out of control. So you ask yourself, how can that be, how can that be turned around? And the only way it can be turned around is by regulation, by, you know, the, the, by law and order, if you like, in an extreme sense. So an independent regulator, I think, would control that crucial aspect of the whole game, the, the, the ownership and financial side and they would impose restrictions and constraints on these owners. But the, a lot of the Premier League clubs won't want it because it might stop foreign investors coming into the league and it will certainly curtail their freedoms. But it will have to come from 
from a government level then, won't it, Art? Because, you know, if you think about it, at the moment, football is, again, a, a bit of a shield for them, a few easy headlines. What hopes do you have for this supposed fan-led review of the game once football's political usefulness fades away? It's a tough one. <laughs> Obviously, speaking as someone who loves the game, I would love to see it. But considering who runs football and how powerful they are, I personally don't see it happening. And that's what just holds me back from getting a bit carried away about it. But when when you look at the, the proposal of things being reviewed by fans... It is an enticing one, not because, say, they're the people who are going to get the tough decisions right, but they have the emotional connections to clubs, players, fans, being the fans, and they're going to understand the human ramifications of some of these decisions. That being said, the people at the top of the game, I'm not sure whether they respect those opinions enough to take them seriously, which is why maybe my answer there was a bit hesitant at first. Mm. But I think we all know who the game is for, but not everybody does. Because mm. I'm looking, Paul, for, for signs of you know, tangible willingness to change. Now, in that context, you think the, the EFL were right to criticise this so-called solidarity gesture of £100 million from the Premier League in this new rolled-over TV deal. Because let's be honest, that sort of figure is pretty well covered by the parachute payments they will save because of Watford and, and Norwich going up. The AFL have been very strong through Rick Parry in calling for parachute money to be scrapped. Is that a way forward? Because we do have to. If we believe in the pyramid, we've got to sustain it. And at the moment, we're starving it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll just read what the EFL said about the parachute payments. Um, it is our strong view that parachute payments are not a form of solidarity and instead provide a reward for relegation while distorting competition. So, in other words, it has to go. It, it, it's it's subsidising relegated clubs. It's rewarding them for failure. So it's distorting the championship promotion race. And it's also actually mostly failing to keep teams in the Premier League when they go back up. It's, it's, it's enough to make them rich, but not enough to make them survive when they get back up. They're still disadvantaged. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty odious attempt by the Premier League clubs to look after themselves and almost to, you know, to, to, to soften the blow of, of relegation. And if this, is, um, if this solidarity payment replaces the parachute payment, and is in the same kind of ballpark amount, <clears throat> then I don't see that it, it, it solves any of the problems of the EFL, some of which we should say are, are self-inflicted. You know, championship clubs, are a lot of them are running at 100 and 120% of wage to turnover ratio, so they're basically giving all their income to players in this kind of mad chariot race to get into the Premier League. So the, the problems do go beyond Premier League wealth and its, and its failure to kind of filter down through the system. But ultimately, yes, the depth of the inequality, the distortion, the polarity rather between top and bottom is too big for anyone to look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's fair enough. Let's just carry on with that. Mm. Because you know, after last weekend of all weekend, 
art, we we basically discovered the value of dreams, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. And I think when we look at the promotion race in the championship, a lot of people from the outside of the championship, I believe, were hoping to see some different faces in the Premier League next season. A lot of people were hoping for Barnsley to pull through, Brentford as well. But you get the usual Norwich and Watford, and no disrespect to those clubs, but if they're going to come into the Premier League and have that almost safety blanket of the parachute payments from the previous year when they were relegated, what's to say they're not going to do the same again in the season they return? And I think that's where teams or fans get a bit frustrated with the way that the system is run because you end up just getting the same the same product every year and that's not what anyone would want. You lose the ability to dream, I believe, if you can almost predict straight away which teams are going to come up. And although Norwich lost, say, a very good player, Ben Godfrey, to, to Everton at the start of the season, they would have been favourites to come up and deservedly so because they played great football. But uh, I don't think people would be opposed to an outsider like Barnsley or Brentford, even though I wouldn't maybe class Brentford as as big outsiders because they have been in and around that promotion push for a couple of seasons now. But to, to freshen up the Premier League with those faces, I, I believe most fans would would go for that rather than seeing someone who you believe <laughs> mm. is likely to go down straight away again. And that's where almost, again, it, it comes to Leicester, just the way they came up. And if you compare their time in the Premier League to, say, a Crystal Palace, who were promoted in 2013 and since that promotion almost just looked to survive every year rather than go and playing for something like the they I know they reached the FA Cup final in 2015-16 but they haven't gone for that again in as big of a way as say Leicester have done for the FA Cup this year or even just European qualification as Leicester have done. And I know that Leicester's chances have been helped by winning the Premier League title, but they went for that. And I don't believe teams who are, as we call them, those yo-yo teams, have that, say, willingness to just bet everything on doing the best they can. And that's where... I believe the frustration from, say, the EFL comes in where they have teams that would offer that to the Premier League and they don't get the opportunity because the the teams that are relegated get that that prize for being relegated. Mm. I'd like to dwell, Paul, if we could, on on another reminder of, of sports humanity and football's connection to family and identity. And by that, I mean the Alison Becker head of God goal. You know, those, <laughs> that interview, I tend to think, I don't know if you agree, but the, the post-match, immediate post-match interview is a really, really hard skill to crack. 
You, you, you look at guys like Des Kelly, who I think you know do a brilliant job under that pressure of live TV. That interview with Becca was really memorable for for all the right reasons, and the goal was, you know, it basically made Roy of the Rovers redundant, didn't it? <laughs> when when you're when you're looking at that, what was your reaction when that goal went in? My reaction was just to shout involuntarily. I mean, I just I, I was sitting there watching the clock tick down, thinking, "Oh dear, you know, Liverpool are struggling now in their quest to get a Champions League spot." And suddenly the goalkeeper rumbles up, and you think, oh, "I've seen this one before." You know, the goalkeeper rumbles into the box; he doesn't get anywhere near it. The other team clear it and they realise the counter-attack's on. Then you watch the goalie sprint, you know, 80 metres back to his goal to try and recover and it's all a mess and it was all a waste of time, but it was a, it was a kind of, you know, a noble gesture, really. And yet, in he goes and the, and the ball just seemed to... The ball just seemed to want to find him and then he <clears throat> produced this quite brilliant technique. I saw Alan Shearer tweeting this morning saying, you know, I tried all my life to head the ball like that. I mean, I, that, that's a... <laughs> That's a skill that centre-forwards would attempt, I mean, countless times in training during the average week. And he just, he jumped, he twisted his body and then he, and he, and he just swiveled his neck perfectly and directed this kind of bullet into the, into the corner. So it was, it, was, it was the ultimate striker's header from a corner. And I, I saw this morning, actually, that um, Liverpool have, no Liverpool goalkeeper has ever scored a goal in a competitive match. That was the first time a Liverpool keeper's done that. And, and as soon as, um, I mean, the reaction from everybody on the bench told the story, the players were laughing with, in, with pleasure and delight. You know, they couldn't believe he'd done it either. The whole country's joining in. It was a kind of great unifying moment, much as Tielemann's goal was actually in a, in a different way the day before. And then as soon as the whistle blew, you could see that there was something else going on with Alisson because there was some other emotion at play. It wasn't just winning the game in stoppage time with a brilliant header by a goalkeeper. You could see that there was some deep human thing going on with him and he was very emotional. And then in the interview afterwards, of course, he told the story. He talked about his father and he said that he hadn't been giving interviews recently because he knew he'd get too emotional, so he'd been trying to avoid them. And it all just came out. So as as if it wasn't enough to see this brilliant goalkeeper's goal in stoppage time, you also got this extraordinary kind of, of outpouring of feeling, an insight into into a top player's life, and a reminder that, you know, they're they're not machines. They're not they're not they're not figures in an Xbox game. They've got they've got lives and families and personal histories, and 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 all this was kind of just laid out in front of us, and and it was it was quite humbling really, and 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 everybody felt this tremendous sort of connection with him and. So by the end of all that, it, you know, you just felt that you'd, you'd had more kind of joy than, than you'd ever expect in a, well, in a West Brom-Liverpool game in which one of the teams had been from Liverpool game in which one of the games and the other one's trying to get into the Champions League, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was pretty good, wasn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And also what I found interesting was the way Alisson acknowledged the support that he's had from within the game and that, you know, we talked about solidarity, didn't we, Art? Well, this is true solidarity, mentioning support he's had from from Everton, from Manchester City, from you know perceived rivals. That tells us a little bit about football and footballers, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think remembering back to when the unfortunate incident happened, I think the most we saw of that solidarity was 
probably the most obvious one with Roberto Firmino, obviously both very, very close, him him and Alisson. But when you look at how football can stretch in terms of its goodwill, we do see that quite often when these unfortunate events happen, when, say, like in this case where a loved one is lost, people do reach their hands out and remember that someone is human at the end of the day rather than looking at the colours they're wearing. I think that's where the power of the sport comes in because no matter which way you look at it, someone is going to have experience quite similar to you. And that's where that comes into play, where you see almost just the, the human emotion just expels all the footballing nonsense. <laughs> who, who cares about three points when when a player or a person has experienced something like that and has almost shut themselves away from from the world to protect themselves, but they don't need to do that. I think if they just, it's another example of just opening yourself up and receiving more love than you could have ever imagined, really. When you think of, obviously, Liverpool and Everton, the example you gave, Mike, it tells it in itself that football is much wider than just, oh, red versus blue or whichever colour you want to choose. And I think that that was really a great thing to see and hear from from Alisson in terms of just the way he was kind of accepted in that low, low moment. Because I know not many people would have chosen to reveal that as well, I don't feel. But for him to be comfortable with that as well probably shows the level of support that he's had in that time to be able to 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 open up about that even though it is still relatively recent since that event happened so that is a credit not just to Alison for the strength they showed in the interview but also a credit to the level of support that he he's received from both teammates friends family the football family and everyone in between. There was a sense, wasn't it, that you know, something like that had been written almost. You know, we've all pretty much gone on record, haven't we, Paul, over the course of this season, looking at, you know, the physical manifestation of Liverpool's decline, i.e. the injuries that they've suffered. There's all this highlight that actually the game is much more of a mental process. You know, if you look at the, the Liverpool's record... They lost six out of seven. Now they're currently eight unbeaten. Does that suggest to you that the dip was a a result almost of accumulated mental fatigue, and maybe we were the injuries were a bit of a red herring? Yeah, I think the injuries started it, but I agree that the sort of confidence and intensity in the team dropped surprisingly quickly and surprisingly far. So it became kind of self-fulfilling. Liverpool didn't look like Liverpool anymore. They weren't they weren't pressing the ball in the same way. The the front three weren't scoring in the same way. I mean now they're they've gone back to kind of quite agricultural defending in central defence, which doesn't matter as long as you keep the ball out of the net. I mean they didn't play well at West Brom, but they've got that winning feeling back and they've got a, a cause to pursue, you know, and they, they they obviously see themselves now as being in a little mini tournament, which they are with Chelsea and Leicester to get that fourth position in the table. And they look like they're enjoying it again. They've got something to play for. And it's it's very odd the way that comes and goes in football. You don't you don't expect 
really top teams, Champions League and Premier League winning teams to to suffer those kind of collapses of conviction, if you like. You know, we, we think they're they're above that and that they they're not susceptible to those those dips that you see in lesser teams. But it turns out they are, certainly with Liverpool. As, as I said, I think the I think the injuries were the catalyst, but the way they the way they fell apart after Christmas was as much as psychological as as physical. And now they're just starting to recover from that. Yeah. It's you know, we know that Liverpool is is an emotionally driven football club, don't we, Art? But I suppose when you look at their most obvious core celebra, Trent Alexander-Arnold, he's probably answered a lot of questions about himself, not just as a footballer, but as a young man, hasn't he? Do you expect him now to be included in, in the Euro squad? 100%. I, I think it would be a massive mistake not to bring Trent Alexander-Arnold, considering not just how immediate his reaction was to his on-pitch reaction was to being excluded from the latest England squad, but just in terms of what he offers as a footballer, he's very unique, even though there may be superior defenders at the right-back position, like, say, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Kieran Trippier. I do believe that he is the most talented, and maybe I'm a fool for wanting the most talented players in the squad, but when when you can call on someone that can flip a switch and is almost unplayable, even though there may be more secure players that you can call upon, I do think that those intangible assets, like just being able to breeze past the left back or being able to whip the most stupendous cross into the box, or like he's shown in recent weeks, being able to to finish a few chances himself, I do believe that that should get him in the squad at least, if not the starting eleven of most of these games. Of course, there have been doubts this season over his defending, and maybe that that those were warranted. Thinking back to the Southampton game in particular, where he switches off for the free kick at the near post. That's probably the prime example of that. Also, him being targeted by Ramjid and Tony Cruz. But I do think that when you have a player like him and you know what makes him feel confident in those moments, those pressure moments, that's when, especially in knockout football, you need to swing with those players who you almost can't describe <laughs> their worth over those players who maybe you can rely on in those situations where you believe the team should be playing a bit more safely. So, yeah, I think that with Trent Alexander-Arnold, still still very young, but is has played beyond his years in these past few seasons, and there shouldn't be any doubts over his place in the England squad. And, and one thing I would say is, I know like a big deal was made when he was excluded, but maybe that was the right decision from Gareth Southgate to give him that that wake up call ahead of such a big tournament to to shift into gear and show what he has done in in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul, you've been in, investigating or researching the, almost the DNA of, of, of England's national team for your your forthcoming book. This generation of young players that that we've got. 
yeah, obviously the squad will reflect that and the excitement will build before the Euros. Just want to concentrate on one player, if I could, and I know that's unfair. Jaden Sancho, he's been excelling in Germany in the Bundesliga. Difficult question, I, I, I recognise this, but how do you think he would have developed had he stayed at Manchester City instead of going to Dortmund? Well, he wouldn't have played as many minutes. That's that's the basic fact, isn't it? He's been a regular there in Germany and a, and a regular star as well. In, at, at City, he'd have had to go through the Phil Foden cycle of, you know, fighting his way through to a, a starting position. Would he be there yet? Uh, who could say that's, that would be up to Guardiola because Guardiola's obviously got a, a very acute sense of a player's development and how far and how fast it should go. I mean, the way he's, the way he's developed Foden all the time, every, we were all saying, get him in the team, get him in the team. He was actually seeing that he, he needed a bit more time, he needed to learn a bit more. And when he did become a, a first eleven player, he was he's fully effective. He is fully effective now. So you can't necessarily apply that template directly to Sancho. But I think that the development, his development in Germany has been obviously borderline spectacular. He is, he is out of sight and out of mind a bit. And, and there are so many other good players, that, young players that we're getting excited about. It's kind of understandable in a way that, that the, the one who's playing in, in Germany every week isn't getting quite the same attention as Mason Mount and Phil Foden and Jack Grealish and all the others. So that's a, that's a problem for him. But I think Gareth Southgate will know. Gareth Southgate will, will, will have his monitors all over him. And if he feels he's an essential component in that Euro 2020 squad, he'll, he'll pick him. If he feels he's not quite ready or he can live without him or it would be better to go with the players he's used more and seen more of, then you're just going to have to trust Gareth Southgate's judgment. Mm. What do you think the broader lessons are, are of, of Manchester City's title? Yeah, obviously well-deserved. Obviously, squad depth has played a role in it. The importance of progressive coaching. Do you think that made the difference in the end? I think the planning paid off when you look at how, of course, the disappointment of last season and they say goodbye to arguably their most influential player of the decade, David Silva. But it's almost going back to Paul's point just then. Pep Guardiola knew Phil Foden was the next man up. Also with that, Bernardo Silva, who who came to the club as a winger, had been playing in that central role for seasons before <laughs> David Silva left the club. And you've almost got the blueprint there. You just have a conveyor belt of players that you're ready to to put onto it and perform your your formula to the best way possible. Of course, the big difference say this season from last season is how strong their defence has been with Ruben Diaz in there alongside John Stones who's who's revived his career exceptionally well and then with that you see Fernandinho who joined the club in his 30s and is still a very key player and I think when you have that clarity in terms of what you want from your team and when you know where improvements need to be made, that's probably where the planning comes into play. And if you look at, say, Liverpool after winning the Premier League, of course, you can't account for the injuries to Virgil van Dijk, Joe Gomez. But the depth 
in that City squad was much greater. And I, I believe it's it's planning more than anything that has got Manchester City that league title. And also, we can't forget the Carabao Cup as well. Mm. Yeah, I suppose, Paul, you know, up until May the 29th in the Champions League final, in any case, there won't be too many sentences started with City that don't include a reference to Chelsea in. Thomas Tuchel, going back to Wembley, actually, do you think he, he almost got a little touch of the Guardiola-itis in the FA Cup final in terms of overthinking it a little bit? You know, he had Aspeliqueta, you know, playing as as a wing-back, which, you, you know, where you need usually need a roadrunner, and he's not that. Rhys James going into a, a, a back three. Are there questions for Thomas Tuchel to answer now? Because you know we're fickle, aren't we? He he was he was you know the best thing since sliced bread you know, last Thursday. But now, mm, not sure. Yeah, when I was reading all those uh, eulogies to uh, uh, Thomas Tuchel, all of them justified by the way the picture looked at that time, and he is a seriously good manager. I'm not questioning that for a moment. I remember thinking, um, this is all a bit provisional. You know, this this could go wrong in a number of areas. It's already gone wrong in the FA Cup final where. They lost to a wonder goal and a, and a millimetre VAR offside decision when they thought they'd equalised. They've got Manchester City in a Champions League final. They could, they could, they'd be second favourites to win that, however good they are as, the, as a team. But then they've also got Liverpool bearing down on, on them in the fourth Champions League position. So it's not inconceivable that by the end of the month we'll be, we'll be lining up Thomas Tuchel's near misses, you know, and, and, and asking ourselves whether, whether Abramovich has, um, has made the right move and what his, what his next move is going to be. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen because I think Tuchel's added an awful lot to Chelsea and, and to Premier League management and he's, he's clearly very good. But it just shows you how tenuous it is and how, how, things, how quickly things can change. I agree about as Piliqueta as a, as a wing-back was a, was a very odd one on Saturday. And I read a piece about how Tuchel actually has a history of overcomplicating things in cup finals, you know, and, 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 and hitting problems in cup finals. It was a very good analysis. I think it was in the Times. And, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a bit worrying. Maybe, you know, maybe he's going to go and... Um, do something unnecessarily elaborate in this game against Leicester. And, and he did, really. I'm not saying that cost them a, a game because they were they were on top for most of it. And, of course, that, and again, that offside decision was, you know, was the, was the thickness of a shirt, wasn't it? It was so, it was so marginal. They played well and they lost. That, that happens. But inevitably, when that happens, everybody goes back and looks and dissects the team selection, dissects the performance and starts to ask questions. That's the way it is. It is. And, you know, are we... I'm actually thinking here of your association with Arsenal. This season almost seems a bit more deceptive than usual. I'll use Arsenal as the example. Were you as surprised as me at these stats concerning Arsenal since Boxing Day? They won 41 points. Only City and United have done better. They scored 38 goals, which is the fourth in the Premier League. They've only conceded 20, which again is the joint fourth. Is perception more important than reality? Because you know all we've heard from Arsenal over the last few weeks is crisis, whispers, moans, Arteta's not up to it. Where are we with all this? So to the first question, I'm not totally surprised by those stats because 
being on Arsenal Twitter as much as I am. <laughs> I've seen them quite a few times over the past few months. <laughs> and um, I believe that what was going wrong, say, before Boxing Day was Mikel Arteta's system, the three at the back, had got stale. And when he moved to the 4-2-3-1, if we'd like to call it that, with the natural number 10, Emil Smith-Rowe, and then adding Martin Odegaard to that, I believe you are always going to get more goals. And that's why I'd say I'm not totally surprised by that. But in saying that, it seemed like every week from mid-February to mid-April was the biggest week of our uh, Mikel Arteta's season. And that's only natural, I believe, that in any club, but especially with Arsenal, it seems like each passing game is either the end of the world or it's the greatest day ever. And that goes from when the team selection is announced an hour before kickoff, you've already got, (laughs) you've already got a reaction and people have already drawn their conclusions before ball's been kicked. But in terms of the perception, I do believe that that is probably, I wouldn't say more important, but it can blind reality sometimes because I think around that tough period in say November and December a lot of Arsenal fans were calling for Mikel Arteta to have the same fate as Unai Emery but the perception blinded the reality of the fact that Mikel Arteta was given a longer contract than Unai Emery when he was given the job and was also in and around the candidates when Unai Emery was given the job, showing just how much trust he has from the hierarchy at Arsenal. So that's where I believe perception can sometimes just blind logic in in some cases. But um, yeah, I do feel that there's no hiding from the fact that it's been a disappointing season for Arsenal. It's just that 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 stage between November and December where they didn't win from, I believe it was Old Trafford away at Manchester United 1-0 to Chelsea on Boxing Day. They didn't win in the Premier League. That that was the real turning point of the season and no one will be blind to the, to the disappointment of this season, I think. Yeah. You know, Paul, We've been around long enough to know that the, the harshest lessons are delivered on the biggest stage. And I'm thinking in context of you know, Chelsea women and their failure to win the Champions League on Sunday night. Rabbit in headlight defending, Barcelona's pace and width and movement and intensity swept them away. What did you take from that game? And what was the significance, do you think, of Roman Abramovich being there and visiting the dressing room afterwards to commiserate? It was big. I think I think Chelsea, to their credit, have, have, have backed the women's side of their, their club much more sincerely, if you like, than some of the other clubs we could mention. And I think it was a significant commitment on, on his part in the game itself, obviously, Barcelona were operating at a completely different level, to my eyes anyway, quite apart from the fact they scored after 33 seconds and then got a penalty that wasn't 
a penalty. They hit Chelsea so fast and so hard early in the game that Chelsea just didn't recover mentally. So it looked like there was this huge technical and tactical gap between the two teams. It was partly, I think, that was partly a reflection of the psychological damage inflicted by those two early goals. 4-0 at half-time, that, you know, that's, that's beyond the realms of Istanbul, isn't it? You're not coming back from that. So it became a, a bit of a dead game after that. It really was, a, it was a, a total ambush from the first minute. So we didn't get a real true reflection of what Chelsea are about, but we did see that if there's a better women's team than Barcelona out there, I'd certainly like to see them. Yeah, you watch a lot of the women's game. In fact, you you, you saw Joe Montemurro's last game yesterday, didn't you? A 9-0, which maybe tells you something else about the inherent inequalities of, of the women's game at the moment. Take it in the round. Where is the women's game now? Do you think you know it, it's, its future seems to me to be exceedingly bright because there are so many factors telling you that both socially and culturally and in a sporting sense, the women's game is here and it won't go. It won't go away. Yeah, I think especially with the TV deals that have come this season in North America, broadcasting the WSL and the ones that are coming next season, is that's a real sign that it is here to stay <laughs> and the demand is there. It has been there for years. And it's just about bringing it to the wider consciousness of the football community. In terms of where the game is now, I do still feel that in terms of the word you used there, inequity, I believe it was, in terms of referencing Arsenal winning 9-0 against Crystal Palace women, that's where I believe from viewing just women's sport in general, because... Uh, I used to cover women's rugby as well. One thing that's very apparent in in games where it's a top side against maybe a side that isn't fully professional yet is the athleticism of the top side compared to, to the other is far superior, where you can tell their players are athletes, the way they're built and how physical they are. Compare that to a team that is in a lower division trying to cause an upset they're not built in the same way i'd say and that takes its toll where say in the champions league final charlotte harper at the athletic wrote her piece on the final she she's lucky enough to go and one of the key points that the barcelona manager brought up after the game was that when they lost were thrashed by leon two years ago it was the physical side of the game that they were lacking on. So they've spent the past couple of seasons basically working on that physical side to get them to this point. And that's where I think that's where the disparity comes in. If you just leave all the financial stuff out of the way, of course it plays a it plays a role in that because the better facilities you have, the the better you can prepare your athletes. But that's probably where you see results like that and thinking back to the Arsenal game yesterday a lot of those nine goals came in the last 10 minutes of the game where Arsenal women's players were probably still at a decent physical level whereas Crystal Palace's players may have been struggling a little bit and yeah I think in, ter- in terms of the game the day itself Joe Montevideo's final game in charge of Arsenal when I spoke to him after the game he said it was 
a very nice summary game for the football he tried to implement at Arsenal. And from a journalist's point of view, covering him, he's been great in terms of just being very honest. I think he's much more honest than most managers I've come across in terms of admitting when he's been wrong in games. <laughs> he lost, I think, 4-1 to Chelsea last season and was very forthright in saying, I tried to play narrow, they played wide, that's why we lost 4-1, basically. Whereas I, I don't think you'd get that honesty from most managers. But aside from that, one thing that's been really key to, to his Arsenal women as well is the human element as well was very almost intrinsically linked with the football side of things with him from the very beginning. And that's where I, think I, I wrote a piece basically on his legacy. And he's an Arsenal fan, grew up an Arsenal fan in Australia, if you didn't know. And he joined during Arsene Wenger's final year in charge. And so before, before the game yesterday, I asked him whether he actually got to meet Arsene Wenger. He said yes. And also shared a story that when his mother passed away in March 2018, he actually received a handwritten letter from Arsene Wenger. He still has it today. And I think when Arsene Wenger left the club, he, he asked Arsenal lovers to take care of the values of the club. And I think Joe Montemura did that exceptionally well, both in a football and a human sense. Yeah, you can't buy class. You know, it's obvious, isn't it? Chelsea's women were blinded by the light in Sweden. They'll come again with the owner's blessing and support. And in Emma Hayes, they've got a leader, I think, of, of rare distinction. She'll know better than anyone that it will get harder from now on, rather than easier, to take that final step. Because all the big clubs now are making suitable investments in their women's teams. Now, I hope she succeeds and gets back to the Champions League final and wins it next time. Because I don't think the women's game could have a better role model. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Art and Paul for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.